0: Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook. Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host this week, Dr. John Cook. Good Books Radio is a production of the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley as a public service to the community and public radio. Today's book is Building the Intentional University, Minerva, and the Future of Higher Education. With me is one of the co-editors of this book, Ben Nelson, who is founder, chairman, and CEO of Minerva, a visionary with a passion to reinvent higher education. He spent more than 10 years at Snapfish, serving five years as CEO. Mr. Nelson, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. This is an interesting book, and I I was fascinated by the the name Minerva because uh, I studied the Greek and Roman pantheons, and I know that Minerva was the goddess of wisdom, but I looked it up, and I found that uh, she's also the goddess of medicine and commerce and handicrafts and poetry and the arts, and war. Yeah. So. Uh...
1: And, and just wars. <laughs> Only just, Mar, Mars was, was the god of, of all wars, and, and Minerva was the goddess of just wars, the wars that needed to be fought for the sake of humanity.
0: Mm-hmm. And so... That's why you chose that name, is that right? Exactly. Okay, very good. Um, I want to talk about this unique approach uh, that you have to higher education, and uh, it, it really is based a lot on the science of learning, Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we want to set up up front is something that's uh, going to, to shock some people because of how most of higher education approaches learning, and that is that lecture is one of the least effective ways to teach.
1: Uh- yeah, actually, it's, it's, it's fascinating because it's, in some ways it's effective to teach via lectures, but it's completely ineffective to learn through lectures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in the sense that from a teaching perspective, if you're a professor and you need to teach a whole bunch of students from uh, a, an official duty perspective, well, you know, you might as well get in front of a, a crowd of 600 rather than teaching them 15 students at a time. Mm-hmm. And um, much easier to just stand up and talk as opposed to actually engage Every single person in your uh, in in the classroom to uh, make sure they're actually learning,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's actually the the fundamental problem, which is that we, when when you are disseminated information to you, don't retain it, and you actually have to participate with
0: it. Uh huh. And and so that brings us to the notion of what learning ought to be about, because when you're lecturing, you're delivering content, and that's right. not really the focus of Minerva classes, is it?
1: No, it really isn't. You know, uh, if you think about it, uh, you know, if you ask universities in a uh, in a broad sense, why do you exist? They'll tell you, well, we we are here to create and disseminate content, and the creation of content obviously makes sense. You have to go and uh, uh, um, do research and, and and push the boundaries of knowledge, but the dissemination of knowledge, the dissemination of information really doesn't require university anymore. You know, I mean, it hasn't actually required a university in several hundred years ever since uh, the invention of the printing press. But certainly the Internet has uh, vastly broadened access to information, and um, it is actually much, much uh, more effective to learn um, at your own pace uh, acquiring information maybe even talking to peers rather than trying to learn by sitting in a lecture because we all know when we went to universities we didn't learn by just sitting in the classroom we learned on our own we read the textbook we read we read the we did the problem sets you know uh, the lecture you know who can actually remember what occurred right and that's because deep processing is the way the mind retains information and so when you think about what a, the, this precious time between an expert in a field and a set of peers should be devoted to, it really has nothing to do with the dissemination of knowledge. It has to do about exploring the unanswerable questions, the things that have nuance, right? There may, there may be no one right answer. There may be many wrong answers, right? But there may be many types of alternatives. This is where debate and collaboration, an application of knowledge and novel context comes in. And that really is what a learning environment, a multi-person learning environment, should be all about. But that's extraordinarily rare to encounter in traditional higher education.
0: Mm -hmm. So how many years has Minerva been operating now?
1: So we are uh, we have been operating for four years now we 've just uh, completed our fourth year. Uh, our first year was a small pilot year, and then we had three full years of students mm-hmm. um, and so uh, this coming September will be the first time when we will have four classes of students We'll have effectively a full university
0: mm-hmm. now when when we we start this process of building this incredible institution. Um, I, I, I want to get into some of the nuts and bolts of the structure. I mean, you're in eight cities, uh, you're virtually connected, very small classrooms, and a focus on preparing students for the challenges of the 21st century. Talk a little bit about all that, how that all fits together.
1: Sure. So it, it really actually starts with the curriculum, and this is kind of an odd thing, because when you go to a visit a traditional university, you will not, you know, your tour guide will not sit down and tell you, well, let me tell you about what we teach here. Um, in, it, at best, it'll be an afterthought. It'll, be, it'll talk about buildings, sports, uh, cafeterias, uh, traditions, histories, et cetera. Um And Minerva doesn't start with that at all. It starts with what is it that we want to have to see our students be able to do when they graduate. And for us, it was very simple. Um, the world is increasingly complex, and it needs people who will be in positions to make decisions of consequence, decisions that affect the lives of others far more than they'll impact their own lives. And these individuals need to have, first and foremost, systemic thinking. And so our curriculum was designed to provide that systemic thinking, and not only a system of thought, not only a uh, uh, a curriculum that teaches you this is how to think, but actually several lenses through which you can analyze the world and come to reasoned conclusions. And so we have to understand both the formal analytical world so thinking about logic and reasoning and uh, algorithmic thinking statistical thinking etc you have to look at the empirical the observed world see what when how you analyze data that isn't well structured that is ill structured that is questionable whether or not uh you can you can just apply algorithmic thinking to answer and you have to look at the complex systemic world which is the world we all live in Our bodies are complex systems, human interactions are complex systems, Uh, financial markets, political systems, uh, ecosystems. These are all complex systems that are governed by uh, a set of uh, uh, unwritten rules of how various elements, various agents interact with one another. Um, And, of course, we live in a human world, and we communicate with one another. And so understanding rhetorical systems, how we actually communicate and interact with one another, is also crucial. And so we've established a curriculum that actually teaches the component parts of each of these broad areas in a pedagogical method that makes sure that students are actually engaged, not lectured to. Mm -hmm. And then we designed a university experience to be able... So uh, for students to be able to apply what they have learned in the formal educational environment into the real world. So our students spend their first year living in San Francisco, and they live in San Francisco as adults do. Yes, we have a residence hall where they have beds and baths and kitchens, but outside of that, they go shopping in local stores or markets. They uh, go to the local gym or to the local park to exercise. We don't curate the world for them We actually give them guidance on how to navigate it themselves. Mm -hmm. And then after the first year, they will go and live in six additional cities all over the world, spending one semester each in Seoul, Hyderabad, Berlin, Buenos Aires, London, and Taipei, before coming back as a cohort to graduate in San Francisco um, at the end
0: of their four years. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's, There's... Uh, some critical skills that are the building blocks, especially for the four core courses, the year-long courses for their first year. Uh, and, and those those skills are critical, and all universities talk about teaching creative thinking, critical thinking, um, communication skill, uh, interactive skill. We all talk about teaching that, but you have yeah. a unique approach to that. Uh, let's talk about building those skills and how they're applied in the courses of the first year.
1: Sure. Uh, you know, in in The the traditional, uh, the the, uh, common uh, uh, sense or the traditional belief in universities is that if I want to teach you how to critically think or I want to teach you how to problem solve, I'm going to teach you about history or physics or or literature, and then you'll pick up the other stuff by accident. (laughs) So this is akin to me saying, you know, I'd like to teach you how to dance so let me teach you how to cook because you have to move around the kitchen and clearly you're going to pick up dancing that way. <laughs> right? It's just insane. I mean, it's, 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 it's one of these, these absurd things when you look at it on the surface, but we've somehow accepted this as common wisdom. And the fact of the matter is, is that when you do studies of people's abilities to acquire generalizable critical thinking skills when they've learned them in a context in their field – it turns out they don't do very well at all. So there's a very famous study of air traffic controllers, people who have to have and exert tremendous amount of critical thinking on their, in their field, in their job. And they were, we were given a general critical thinking test, assuming that they're going to score off the charts. And it turned out that on that test, they scored exactly like the average professional. No difference. Mm-hmm. And so that is the problem of transferability. And and far-transfer, the ability to learn something in one context and apply it in another, is the holy grail of education. It's what we colloquially refer to as wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to apply pattern recognition right, from various things that usually you've experienced, because no one has ever taught it before, (laughs) into novel contexts. Right? You don't go to somebody who you consider wise and say, oh, you know, I'm encountering this situation. I'm sure you've encountered this exact situation in your past. What should I do? Right? Usually you say, I'm encountering this situation. I know you haven't encountered this situation in the past, but given your wisdom, given your understanding of the way the world works, what do you advise that I do? And so in order to actually teach wisdom uh, as opposed to, merely hope that it happens, you have to come break breaking into its component parts. So indeed, if you think about what a wise person does, they think about uh, problems critically. They have tremendous critical thinking skills. They can think about so- solutions to problems. They're highly creative in their thinking. They can think about effective interactions, both interpersonally, when they give you advice, but also thinking about unintended consequences, second and third order effects, and things like that. And they can obviously communicate very well. And so these four capacities are not a mystery. To actually talk to most universities, at least, three of those four, at least three of those four will be referred to by any uh, educator as being crucial. However, When you actually ask somebody, okay, great, well, what is critical thinking? They're going to struggle telling you what it is because actually critical thinking or any of these capacities are not a thing. They are a combination of a whole bunch of subcomponents. So for example, one form of critical thinking is evaluating claims. Another form of critical thinking is making decision trade-offs. Right? These are very two very different things. And by the way, each of those have subcomponents that are very different from one another. If I want to decide whether or not I should take path A or path B, making a decision trade-off, well, I may have to use a cost-benefit analysis. But a cost-benefit analysis has nothing to do with evaluating claims. In right? evaluating claims, I may use statistical analysis. I may use logic. I may think of a counterclaim. And so we actually break down these broad 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 capacities the individual component parts and then we make sure the students learn those individual component parts not in one context not by the study of history or medicine or what have you but actually in many many different contexts so we introduce them in one context with the foregrounding of the learning about this concept as opposed to the subject matter, and then we, we have the students apply that concept to different subject matters over the course of their four years.
0: Mm-hmm. So how does the the HC fit into that, the habits and, and concepts uh, notion?
1: Right, so each one of these component parts um, is, is really one of two kinds of elements, intellectual elements. The first one is a habit of mind, something that is recalled automatically, but then is difficult to actually um, uh, apply. So, for example, um, we talked about evaluating claims. So, one way of you evaluate claims is you think of a counterclaim. So, it's very easy to train the mind to say, "Hey, I hear a claim, think of a counterclaim." It's difficult though to think of the counterclaim sometimes, right? And so. Habits of mind are things that with practice are easy to trigger, but then hard to learn how to apply. The opposite of that are foundational concepts, things that are uh, relatively uh, hard to trigger, but relatively easy to teach. So, for example, um, I could teach you statistical analysis relatively straightforward process. You you learn statistics. What's hard is to know what kind of statistical uh, tool to apply to a particular problem. Developing those intuitions takes quite a while. And so these habits and concepts, a 100 in total, are what underpin these four broad capacities that we teach. And it's those habits and concepts that we not only ensure that their students learn and apply in different contexts, but those are the things we give them feedback on throughout all four years so that they develop in mastery in each and every one of them. And together, these habits and concepts allow our students to make wise decision-making, what we refer to as critical wisdom, much, much earlier in their lives than a a person having a, a traditional education.
0: Very good. So let's let's peer inside this classroom. Uh, we'll talk about the technology and alpha a bit, but first let's look into the classroom and how students prepare for class and what the role of facilitator is in a given class uh, setting for a ninety-minute course.
1: Sure. Um, so Minerva classes are, are are very very intensive. You know, we talked a little bit before about um, uh, how lectures are not uh, effective. So if you actually do brain scans of an individual when they're sitting in a lecture and, and show another brain scan of a, of a student that is sleeping, you will not be able to see the difference. It's actually remarkable. Um, and so usually that's why during a lecture you feel very, very tired, and after a lecture you feel very refreshed, mm-hmm. right? And you're like, oh, I'm, I'm ready to go now. Mm-hmm. Um, in a Minerva class, there's an enormous amount of preparation you do before, about three hours of work for every one hour of class. So a traditional maneuver course, which is about an hour and a half, is about four to five hours worth of preparation work. Because that's when you consume information. And you can do that for free. You don't have to pay us to do that. Um, but the course is when you apply it. So professors are uh, not allowed to talk for more than four minutes at a time. Uh, they are required to engage all of the students. and In fact, uh, we built a technology a platform through which all of our classes are held via live video because the technology itself enables the professor to make sure that every student is engaged in an efficient uh, way. So there's no back row. You know, there are only uh, 16 to 18 students in a given class, and so uh, all of their faces are on everybody's screen. Everybody sees everybody else. And even though all of our students live together, the intensive environment of the Minerva classroom ensures that they learn far more efficiently than they would if they were just to gather in a room. And so in a Minerva class, during class, you are very engaged, and after class, you're exhausted because mm-hmm. your brain actually worked.
0: Mm-hmm. And the, the tools in that 90-minute class session after they've prepared the content are applied to answer complex questions, and the tools include debate and polls and breakout groups and things where they have to be active, yes?
1: Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And in fact, every lesson has various components, various modules that are built into the technology. in in any given lesson and saying, oh, okay, here's when we're going to do a poll. Here's when we're going to do a breakout. Here's when we're going to do a simulation. And all of that is built into the platform so the professor doesn't have to worry about, okay, well, how do I set up a poll now? They just press a button. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, and so, and and that's how the classes can progress easily, and the professor can focus on educating the students as opposed to managing the class.
0: Mm-hmm. And and let's let's do talk about the uh, the active learning forum because you mentioned the technology, the 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 facilitator, the professor has a screen that shows who's participating a lot and who's participating a little, and the goal is to have everybody participating at least seventy five percent of the time.
1: Exactly, exactly. Right, and so. The technology that we built, uh, and we had to build it from scratch because it really was somebody thinking about this in, in this way, ensures that there's real-time data that the professor can access in an easy way. So, for example, the the video uh, streams of each of the students uh, turn different colors Uh, red, yellow, or green, depending on how much they've participated. And so the professor can very easily decide, oh, okay, this person hasn't talked enough, let me call on them. Uh, And then the system will track how much uh, each each student talks, and so until everybody is in that yellow state, and the professor knows that at that point they've provided even uh, uh, attention for for all the students, give or take, um, uh, obviously, a couple of minutes. Um, and all of the tools were built in in order to facilitate that. But the technology does something else, which is which is uh, which we referred to a little bit earlier with this concept of transfer. Uh, and active learning techniques can sometimes be employed offline, also easily. You could always put people in breakout groups, even though there's overhead of chairs moving around and uh, and things like that. But what you cannot do offline is provide this concept of a scaffolded curriculum. So as I mentioned, we teach about 100 of these habits of mind and foundational concepts. And so that, in order to be able to both introduce, contextualize, and then cross-contextualize these 100 different elements across 30 different courses, taught by 30 different professors across four years, you actually have to track how it is that students are doing and progressing on each one of those things and be able to represent back to the professor in an easily digestible way which students they should be should be involved in, which activity. And you simply cannot do that offline. Mm-hmm. It's it, impossible. Mm-hmm. Right? And so that, that's the benefit of this online environment.
0: Let's talk about preparing the professors, because they go through significant training and they get a lot of feedback along the way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So... The, the hardest part about about entering the Minerva system is that nobody is used to it. Uh, professors aren't used to not lecturing. Uh, students aren't used to being actively engaged in classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, st- nobody is used to talking about underlying concepts as the main subject material as opposed to the material that you are studying. Uh, and, and that's especially true for our first-year courses. Um, and so the the hardest thing we have to do is actually untrain Everybody that that comes into the Minerva system, and um, and untraining and then retraining the professor is a big is a big part. So every single Minerva professor has to go through four weeks of training, and. Pass that four weeks before they start teaching. Then, when they're in the classroom, they get an enormous amount of feedback on how it is that they are uh, uh, that they're conducting their class. They share notes with other professors teaching the same course, uh, thinking about what happened the previous week, what went wrong, and what went well. And then, how do you, how do they think about uh, about conducting the lesson in the following couple of weeks? So. It's a it's a it's an, an environment that's very nurturing for the educator, uh, which is again something which is. Uh perhaps makes more sense in a K-12 environment because those teachers are there to teach. They've been hired to teach. But in higher education, it's very strange. Um, very few professors have gotten any training on how to, on how to teach. Uh, they didn't learn it uh, in their PhDs. They didn't learn it when they, when they became uh, professors initially. Uh, they certainly don't really get feedback from their peers or from experts about how they conduct class uh, and give them pointers on how to get better. Um, and so it is, uh, it's It's a it's a very aberrant uh, uh, type of approach, even though it's what effectively any professional would want.
0: You know, it, it, it occurred to me when I was reading the section about interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary work that one of the things that would be hard for most professors to accept in a traditional university is they have been hired for their expertise in a certain area, and they don't right. actually consult anybody else about that. So Exactly.
1: <laughs> well, and, and, and that's, in fact, one of the big differences between... Um, the the Minerva professor and a traditional university professor. Traditional university professors are really hired to be extraordinarily narrow and have high, rigid intelligence. I am the world's foremost expert on tulips, (laughs) and we're on this element of tulips. And what I have researched on tulips is right. And if you have a different theory, you're wrong. And my job is to prove you wrong. Right, that, that is a a mentality of a, of a typical good professor, quote unquote, at, at a research university. Our professors have almost the exact opposite, uh, profile. They're extraordinarily broad. They see connections from one field to another, and they have very high fluid intelligence. Develop a hypothesis, right, have good backing for it. If another hypothesis comes in, they'll say, oh, fascinating. Let's interrogate that and see if that hypothesis makes sense. Right, and and that's of course something that you, in the real world you much prefer, right? You you want to of course have expertise, and our professors are all experts in a field, right? That is where they got their PhD. That's where they've they've done their research, etc. But their orientation is to actually be integrating various fields. Which is what, of course, we do in in the real world, and by the way, where most great research actually comes from, it doesn't come from those who are extraordinarily narrow. it comes from the people who have a little bit of that Renaissance perspective mm-hmm. uh, and throughout history, some of the great discoveries have really been from those individuals that could uh, that could find new knowledge or new um, innovation at the intersection of fields as opposed to within one narrow one.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, the discuss- discussion questions are about broad and complex problems often and how do we end world hunger? Can we achieve world peace? Those kinds of questions get discussed in those classes sometimes.
1: Exactly. And, and these are questions that are, by definition, not answerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why we discuss them. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, if if if, uh, if I were to... Uh, uh, to, you know, if we were to have a conversation about uh, you know uh, who won the uh, 1960 election, uh, well, 1960 is probably not the best example. Let's say 1956. Okay. <laughs> um, that, that is a fact. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't really need a conversation about uh, uh, about who who won that election. Um, uh, it's very clear. Now, if you want to have a conversation about the underlying elements of what led to, maybe 1960 is a better example, the outcomes of the 1960 election, now there is an unanswerable question. Mm -hmm. There's so many uh, um, conversations. Was it... Uh, a turning point in American politics was it the fact that you know uh, Chicago polling stations had a, irregular uh, uh, voting patterns was it uh, was it about hope and inspiration? was it about uh, 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 a backlash to fear? These are things that you can start exploring. There are good hypotheses there 's a lot of evidence around them, but there really is no uh, clear understanding of what it, what those things are and of course, the questions that we address are even more. Uh, diffuse and more complex, but they serve as wonderful test beds for the application of dozens of these habits and concepts, and that's why we use them.
0: Okay, I've only got one minute left. I wanted to get into grading and rubrics and and, uh, uh, consistency across lesson plans, Um, but just uh, one word, perhaps, about the fact that y'all started from the ground up, which means that you didn't have to throw out um, the way the traditional university operates. You could build the curriculum from the ground up and how you approach it from the ground up and even your ALF uh, uh, software from the ground up. How can traditional universities bend in this direction?
1: Um, the, the easiest way to think about it is first principles. Mm-hmm. It, 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 when you design a, uh, a solution of any kind um, and you do it from the perspective of constraints, you will have a compromised, ineffective solution, right, if that's your only lens. If your lens starts with first principles, what is it that I want to achieve? And then, being constraint-aware, figure out what solution you can build to achieve those first principles, acknowledging the constraints that you have, you will have a good solution. You may not have a perfect solution, but you will have an effective one. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have. The book is Building the Intentional University, Minerva and the Future of Higher Education. We've been talking with Ben Nelson, co-editor. I can tell you, if you read the foreword by Senator Bob Kerry in this book, you won't be able to put the book down. Uh, it, it, it's a very inspiring book about ways that we need to improve education. It's a good read, Building the Intentional University. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. I remind our listeners that if they don't uh, uh, catch our program at its regularly scheduled time, you can catch up with us on YouTube at Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. I'm your host.